Cats at Night. Now, here's John Katsimatidis. This is John Katsimatidis. This is Cats at Night, the number one show at 5 o'clock by far. Not by a little bit, by far. And uh, we in the studio with us today, we have a common sense judge, Judge Richard Weinberg, common sense ex-governor. I would like to I'd rather say, I hate to say ex, uh, Governor David Patterson and a common sense congressman. Uh, we have Peter King, and uh, he has given us assurances that on King's Highway, there will never be congestion pricing. And, and you can have the air rights if you want to put and, them And the air rights above King's Highway. Uh, and Lydia Serrano on my right. And uh, I just wanted to say, uh, again, I want to thank Cardinal Dolan today. Uh, he brought us into his home, uh, the uh, uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral, for a memorial mass today for Bernie McGurk. Today was his birthday. Mm -hmm. And we had a great memorial mass. We had standing room only. Thousands of people in St. Patrick's Day, uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral. And and, uh, his wife, Carol, was there, his daughter, uh, son. And um, uh, also... uh, you, we now are tomorrow is their anniversary, by the oh, way. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, oh, goodness. And the studio, you and we named the studio the Bernie McGurk Studio. So we're broadcasting from the Bernie McGurk Studio. So well, he'll never be forgotten. It was a his... wonderful service to him. Cardinal Dolan's words, I thought, were really Cardinal very Dolan thoughtful. was beautiful. Right. Bill O'Reilly spoke. Yeah. Uh, uh, Congressman King spoke, and uh, Curtis Lewis spoke, and Bo Deedle. Bo Deedle. Yeah, he even spoke. And uh, me and Chad said a few. I said a few. Hey, I had the best speech. You know why? Shortest. The shortest. <laughs> and uh, the sweetest. Yeah. And uh, on, the, on the line with us, I mean, yesterday was primary days. What the heck is the going debate. on? We're going to have a, a people from all over the country calling in. Uh, who do we have now? We have Pulitzer Prize winning writer Michael Goodwin of the New York Post. Welcome back to Cats at Night. Michael Goodwin. Thank you very much, guys. Well, Michael... It's, uh, it's Richard Weinberg. I, yeah. I thought there was some debate last night. What did you think? What was your take on it? I think that uh, they were both pretty amped up in their own way. I thought Zeldin was, uh, I would have recommended, you know, maybe one cup of uh, decaf there at some point. But, uh, and I think Hochul seemed a little jittery herself, uh, almost uh, shy. I mean, she's a, she's a funny personality for a public figure. I mean, she doesn't really project um, she doesn't answer things clearly. There's a there's an assurance. She assures you that she's honest and she assures you that things are going to work out and they're working on it and they're going to pass this. and They're going to get some things done. But she never is specific and it's never clear. And Zeldin is clear. He's clear as a bell about what he says, what he what he's running on. And so I thought he really took the fight to her. And, you know, because of the long ago Rick Lazio and uh, Hillary Clinton, you know, men have to be careful on the stage with a, with a female opponent. And you remember Lazio sort of crossed over. And I was watching that with some other journalists. And I thought, eh, probably doesn't work. But one of my colleagues, the late Lars Eric Nelson, said, he's dead. That's fatal. And he turned out to be right. Uh, that kind of created a, a line, and I think Zeldin went up to that line. I mean, he didn't smile. He could have smiled once or twice. It wouldn't have hurt him. 
but I, he was on his game. He came, he came loaded for bear, and he stuck to the issues. And I thought he, I thought he handled himself uh, very well overall. I mean, I think that you know some of the questions, uh, you know, speak to his potential weakness in New York, abortion, Donald Trump, etc. I thought he gave about as good of answers as you could practically give in that environment. I thought the moderators did a very nice job. I mean, they kept it moving. They were fair, and I thought they were balanced in, in, in challenging each of them on some of their weaknesses. Um, so overall, I thought it was a good debate, a very good debate for Zeldin. And I think uh, Hochul was just glad it was over. And now we know why she didn't do more than one. Michael, this is Pete King. Where do you see this race going? I mean, it seems to be getting closer and closer. Uh, from my experience in politics, that usually means that the challenger could well win if, the, if it's going his way. But again, how do you see it? Well, um, I, I have felt all along it's a, it's a winnable race. And when you look at the pattern of the polls in this last uh, month or so, I mean, each one seems to put him closer and closer until you had the one that had them in a dead heat. Um, I don't know how many of these polls are accurate. I mean, one of the, the touchstone numbers for me is what is Zeldin doing in New York City? And what are his numbers? And they've been all over the place from 22, I think, to 36 or 37. So it's really hard to get a handle on that portion of the vote, which is so important to him. I also wonder, you know, normally, Pete, the Republican does well in the suburbs and upstate. I wonder if Hochul coming from upstate uh, will will throw some of that uh, vote to the Democrats and whether that would affect any of the congressional races. Uh, Zeldin told me he thought Republicans could win anywhere from 11 to 13, 13 being half of the 26 uh, congressional seats up for grabs. Uh, right now, I think Republicans have seven. So a pickup of four to six would be gigantic. And you would have to assume that would involve large turnout in those races for Zeldin at the top of the ticket as well. So, look, I think he can win. Um, I don't know that last night, because it was such a small audience that, you know, it wasn't really a statewide. It happened seven to eight, uh, only on Spectrum. Um, so not every major population center got that. The big one, New York, certainly. And, and Spectrum kept it to themselves. They kept it between them and, and another uh, radio station that nobody listens to. I forget what it was, WNYC or something? WNYC. We asked to, 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 to broadcast it, and we have a million audience, and they would not let us do it. So that tells me they're rooting for Hochul. Yep. Um, they probably got some pay to play with her, right? Who, who knows? Everybody I don't know. Governor, what do you say, Governor? I, about- I wish I'd thought of that pay to play. You know, I, I could have probably gotten something from her, too, if I wouldn't have <laughs> enough money. But everybody seems to have gotten something from her. I mean, she's been really sloppy. I didn't get anything. Yeah, well, John, I don't know. You got to get I didn't more, get a cup of coffee. You got to ask. Did you ask? <laughs> I never ask. You know that. Governor Patterson, what was your reaction to the debate? I thought that uh, Congressman Zeldin's opening statement was uh, very, very well done. I really l- like the way he did it. You know, I disagree. I disagree with a lot of things he said, but he had a real presence. But that kind of amped up message in the very beginning, that was who he was through the entire debate. And after a while, it was like the Energizer Bunny. I was hoping he right. would just go away. 
<laughs> and 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 what but what I what I, what I did like before we get to the the disagreements about the debate is both candidates stopped immediately when they interrupted and the other said you know I, I'm not finished. They both stopped when the moderators told them to, and they actually did something that didn't happen in the mayor's race last year. They shook hands after the debate was over. So if there's anything to build on, regardless of who wins this election, it's that both candidates, I thought, in that debate displayed a lot of character. I think, in my opinion, as I was watching it— Judge Weinberg? I said to, my, I said to myself— she keeps talking about Trump. She keeps talking about abortion. What does this have to do with making this city and this state survive and flourish and prosper? And I think right. Zeldin's messages on that were very strong on the crime, about the people who are leaving What, what did the she state. say? She said something. Uh, she uh, said, I don't know why it, that's so important me, to you regarding why, crime. Why crime is so important That's to what us? she said. Well, that, the, the specifics, as I recall, was that he, he kept saying she never talks about locking anybody up. Correct. She would talk about, you know, uh, police and all that. He said, but she never at the end says we're going to put handcuffs on people. We're going to lock them up. And that's when she said, why is that so important to you? And I think, you know, it was it was clumsy of her to kind of blunder into it. I don't know that it was the mistake of the decade, but I, I think it does fit into a larger pattern. And this, I'd, I'd like to get y- your opinion on this. Uh, now, Michael. You. L- uh, l- l- hold on one sec. Uh, and that is this the idea that this is a change election. This is a very big change election. She did not come prepared to talk about change. She was more a defender of the status quo. He, of course, is all about change. Isn't that an inherent advantage just given the climate? Governor Patterson? I didn't know he was asking me. Yes, Uh, go ahead. uh, I thought that she defended uh, the actions that she'd taken over the last year. She mentioned uh, what she was able to accomplish, she felt, in in that period of time. I thought she was, uh, I didn't find her to be jittery. I thought she was actually rather calm when she um, uh, staked out her positions and I think that, yes, she did uh, take the conversation into areas that, um, you know, you know, were beyond uh, governance and, and that kind of thing. But there have been a lot of things talked about pay to play and that kind of thing that have uh, f- fit into that. But I actually thought that she staved off a lot of the mystery that seemed to occur and might even be reflected in the polls over the last few weeks. Okay. I- I think the one thing we can all agree on is that Lee Zeldin, he he showed passion. You know, you could say he was a little jittery. He was a little overexcited. Keep people safe. He showed passion, whereas she could, to me, she came across as robotic. John, what did you think? Keep our people safe. That's it. What did you think, Judge? I think John Casper has been saying it for weeks and weeks and weeks. Who do you trust after this election to carry the ball forward to protect us? And the point is, Hochul didn't give that vibe off. Zeldin certainly did. Well, that's what I that's what I mean in terms of the status quo. I mean, if you look at all the all the the, the, the big case that Zeldin has made against New York, that that I've made against New York, that the New York Post has made about taxes and crime and uh, just the the bureaucracy and the quality of life declining here, um, and she acted as though, in my my view of her, she acted as though these are not. We're working on these things. It's not terrible. We're working on these things. And that's why Zeldin raises, why do we lead the nation in out-migration? 
Why do more people leave New York than any other state? Yep. So, got, I mean, to me, that's, what, that's what I mean by change versus the status quo. Is it good enough? It's, I, I, would, I don't think it's good enough. I don't think anybody there thinks it's good enough. But she, I think, gave the impression that she thought it was pretty close to good enough. I, that struck me as, as off. She didn't know what's going on. That's the problem. Michael Goodwin, I got one last question. This is an actual story the Post doesn't have yet. All right. Okay, you know, I'm hosting a dinner party tonight for the uh, Attorney General of, uh, of Hungary, but the foreign minister of Hungary uh, was in Washington today, and uh, there's some breaking news. The Hungarian foreign minister says the Ukraine-Russia war would not have happened under Trump. What say uh, you? Look, I think... Uh, you can, you know, uh, Putin invaded Georgia in 2008 under Barack Obama, took, what, two provinces, I believe. Uh, and he does nothing in the Trump years. Uh, as soon as Biden comes in, he, in, he I'm sorry, in, uh, in, uh, he, he, in 14, right? He went after Georgia under George Bush. That was Crimea. 14, yeah. And in 14, he went after Crimea under Barack Obama. Nothing under Trump, and then suddenly uh, under Biden. Now, I think Afghanistan had a lot to do with it also. I think Biden made a huge mistake. I think Putin saw that. And so I would agree with the Hungarian foreign minister. I mean, we know that he didn't do anything under Trump, and he did an invasion under every other president before and after Trump. So you'd have to conclude there's some, there's some reason there. Well, Michael Goodwin, thank you. Uh, you do a great job at the New York Post. And usually you guys have the breaking news. And, uh, and thank you for coming on. And uh, God bless you. It's Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Welcome back to the John Katz Matidis Cats at Night show. We got a great show for everyone today, by the way. We've got, we're going to speak to Polunces, Hank Hank Schenkoff, uh, Reince Priebus, uh, and uh, Ernie Priot regarding the Pennsylvania race. And now on the line with us, we have uh, Melissa DeRosa. She's a former secretary to former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, and she's also now writing for the Daily Beast. Correct, Melissa? That's correct. Nice to be back. Well, tell us. Last night we had a, a, a debate that's, that may help decide things, but, you know, they wouldn't let us carry it on WABC. They wanted to keep it just in a small spectrum of things. Mm. Literally spectrum. <laughs> Literally spectrum. <laughs> that's what he was out. Yeah, that, I, I think that was absolutely unfortunate, particularly given that, that you know, we really only had two days notice on the, on the debate, right? They had been sort of playing this game of who was going to blink and then finally they moved forward with it just a couple of days ago so it's not like it was highly publicized going in and then it was limited obviously in viewership i know that i have family across the state that were texting me saying how do i watch the debate um so to that point i don't think it had much of an impact i don't think that many people saw it and i think that the only way it would have been a significant event in this campaign is if one of them really landed a punch or one of them really screwed up and I think they both sort of got through without doing either of those things. And uh, and uh, so you thought there was no knockout punches last night? I didn't think there was a knockout punch. But, you know, the thing is, it's you know, I, when I used to do debate prep with my former boss, we just wanted to get through because we were always had these pretty monstrous leads going into the home stretch and you didn't want to do anything to interrupt that momentum. Now, in this situation, you, you have the momentum has been with Zeldin these last couple of weeks. And so 
I would argue he didn't necessarily need the same thing to happen here to be helpful to him. Um, but, you know, on the same side for her, it would have been better, I think, had there been some breakthrough moment where she really landed a punch and was able to paint him as being wildly out of touch. And while I certainly don't agree with a lot of his policy positions, I'm not sure that she accomplished that either. So I think it was sort of a non-event. Do you think, uh, do you think uh, Zeldin has a shot at winning? So, you know, there's been a lot of talk about this, and obviously the polls have been the negative trend for Hochul has been coming into focus in the last two weeks. So, you know, I look at 2014 with the governor versus Astorino, which was a 14-point race, but then I look at 94 where it was Mario Cuomo versus Pataki. And Mario Cuomo versus Pataki, the way his path was that he won every county outside of New York City with the exception of Albany County. And when you look at the number, and he got 27% in New York City, which is important. And he won Staten Island in New York City. So of New York City, he won Staten Island, he got 27%. So when you're looking at the numbers now and you're sort of looking at the trend, the way that the polling is going, I think that there is a significant chance that Zeldin carries the suburbs, both Suffolk and Nassau. I think he carries Rockland and everything north of Rockland, except for Albany County, potentially Onondaga County. And then I think that she holds Erie County. I think, unfortunately for her, based on what I'm hearing about people's internals, I think Monroe County will likely go Republican this time, which isn't a crazy thing. That's where Rochester is. When we ran in 2014 against Astorino, Astorino actually won in Monroe County. So I think in order for him to win, he's got to replicate the Pataki model, with the exception being he can lose a a little bit more upstate, a couple of those counties, so long as the overall vote total is there for him. So he can lose Erie County as long as he makes it up in one of the other counties or a couple of the other counties combined if there's big Republican enthusiasm. And then, and this is a big caveat, if he breaks that magic, you know, 30 to 33 percent barrier in New York City. And the way that happens is if black and brown voters are not motivated and stay home and then he gets a big turnout in Staten Island, maybe the Bronx, maybe in some of the the areas in Queens um, that are still more of, you know, the old school New York City neighborhoods that I think of, you know, the Italian neighborhoods, those neighborhoods. So, you know, lightning would have to strike, but there is a path. I still think it's hers. I still think it's hers to lose. Um, but, you know, when you when you look at 94 and you look at 2014 and you're looking at the current polls, I can see why they would be hopeful. But I still think it's a big reach. Melissa, this is David Patterson, who's well aware that he owes you a phone call. So if you forgive me for that, <laughs> I want to ask you this question. Do you think that after the primary in June and the primary in August, where the pro-choice candidates were winning, people were very upset over the Roe v. Wade decision that there was sort of a sense that as long as you talked about that and you were a Democrat, you had a good chance to win, and that creeping up from behind and then inevitably becoming the main issue of the campaign was crime. Oh, undoubtedly, Governor. I mean, you know, there's sort of been three three different trimesters to this campaign. There was the pre-Dobbs decision where it really looked like Republicans were going to swamp things. Then the Supreme Court decision leaks and subsequently comes out, and it felt like it was shifting much more to the Democrats. And, you know, there were affirmative signs for them. We had the Kansas vote, um, which was very, very big, and you saw the upstate New York State 
special election, it really felt like the abortion issue was resonating. But as we creeped further into the fall and crime really became the top issue, along with the economy and inflation, it was very clear to anyone who was paying attention that the pendulum was swinging back. And I think, unfortunately, Governor, for our party, Democrats are afraid of the crime issue. I think it has to do with Willie Horton. I think it has to do with, you know, some of the residual negatives of the 94 crime bill. Um, But for whatever reason, it's like we're afraid to say that certain people need to be in jail for society to be safe. And we're afraid to say that you can be both progressive on criminal justice. Melissa, why? Why are they afraid to say it? The black and brown kids are dying by the dozens. No, and, and, you know, I think that there is a private acknowledgement of it, but I I do think that after 94, when, you know, Clinton, who, by the way, owned the crime issue, did the crime bill, but then there was the negative impact of mass incarceration that, you know, our party hasn't figured out how to talk about this issue and how to govern on this issue, which is that you can say that there should be clemency and second chances and alternatives to incarceration when the situation allows and when it's appropriate, while at the same time, being tough on crime. But that is such a great point, Melissa. It's got to be more than just getting guns off the streets because there's so many other ways that people commit crimes, particularly in the subway. And that's what and that's exactly what Zeldin said last night to her. It's not all about gun control. And that was a very important point. I have a girlfriend who's, you know, 44 years old, five foot eight, blonde, petite. She was standing on the corner of 21st and 6th Avenue last week at 1.15 in the afternoon waiting to cross the street. And someone walked up to her and punched her in the face. Holy cow. Mm -hmm. And so this is, you know, when you see the recurring videos of people pushing people onto subway tracks and you continue to read about the stories. And the thing is, it's like because of Democrats fear, and I wrote about this in my column this week, to sort of grab hold of this issue and number one, empathize with people and say, I hear you. I understand you're afraid. And by the way, that fear is well founded and I get it. And here's what I'm doing to fix it. Rather than doing that, oftentimes Democratic politicians in this environment are sort of ducking and hoping to run out the clock. And unfortunately for for the Democratic Party, it doesn't feel like that's happening. Again, I still believe Hope is going to win this election, but I do think that Democrats, not just her, but across the country, sort of underestimated yeah, the crime was, issue. Melissa, the I got to say, we're going to be taking a break in about a minute, but I have to say, uh, the Hispanic community is mad as heck at what's going on with all, all the crime. The Asian community is mad as heck. Uh, the the black community, and you know I'm from Harlem. They're mad as heck, and I you know and I don't know where these people uh, say that they're going to get uh, that much out of uh, New York because those people are really mad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I understand, and again, I think that that feeling is deep and wide right now. People are very frustrated, so we'll see how that plays out, either by voting against the party you traditionally vote for or by staying home. Melissa DeRosa, we have a minute left. I wanted to ask you, less than a minute left, what advice would you give Lee Zeldin? I guess I could ask you also about uh, (laughs) Kathy Hochul. What advice? (laughs) Well, I'm not in the business of advising Lee Zeldin, but if I were to say anything to Kathy Hochul, I think that she needs to be spending the next two weeks in New York City and Westchester and the suburbs 
and she needs to be laser focused on that field operation because this is going to come down to turnout. Melissa DeRosa, thank you for everything you've done for our, our state and continue to talk about it. Thank you. God bless you. This is Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Uh, on the line with us right now, I believe we have former uh, chief of staff to uh, Donald Trump, uh, President Donald Trump, and and he was a Republican national chairman. We have Ryan's Priebus. How are you, Ryan's? I'm doing great, John. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Well, it's always good to hear your voice and uh, give us an update. You know, we're, we're down to what? How many? 12 days, 13 days for the election. Give us an update. Where the heck are we uh, nationally? Uh, well, it looks like I think we're going to take the Congress, but where are we with the uh, U.S. senators? Well, yeah, thanks, John. I mean, look, when you when you look at these things, especially with two weeks to go, you really have to focus in on what are the issues that are at the very front of mind of voters across this country. And when you look at it and what people are being reminded of every day are a couple things. Number one is the price of groceries. There's no more frequent reminder uh, to people than the price of groceries. Number two is the price of gas. Number three is crime. And number four are parents out there that are saying that they actually want to have a say in what their kids are learning in school. Now, Harvard actually did a study on this, John, a few weeks ago, and it's not a conservative bastion by no means. And the immigration was next. And then after that, a couple more down the line was abortion in January 6th. So the problem the Democrats have is that the things that they want to push the hardest, abortion and January 6th, is about, you know, five and six on the list. So, look, the Republicans generally around the country are ahead of the Democrats in most of these battleground states, and we can go each through each one if you'd like. However, the problem the Democrats have is they've got no lifelines. They've got nothing that's going to shift their direction between now and November 8th. And that's that's the issue. So Republicans look good in the Senate, too. And governor's races, I mean, uh, uh, we had a big problem in in Michigan. If, if The current governor wants to shut down the pipelines and create a bigger problem for our country. Well, and that's happening all over the country, John. I mean, if you look at Governor Whitmer, now, when you go into a debate like she did last night, and the same with John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, you basically the, your only goal is to come out of those debates and not make news. If you make news, generally it's not good. So Whitmer went into that debate hoping not to make news, and what did she do? She went into that debate and basically told the people of Michigan that their schools were only shut down for three months when that was just a flat out lie. And now if you were in Michigan, the news today in Michigan is the fact that she said schools were only closed down for three months and there was really over a year and this was a lie. So now you have all these parents that are sort of re-aroused on this issue of COVID and the schools. So she created a, a problem for herself. You have the governor in Wisconsin 
who blew it and said that he wanted to release half of the prisoners out of the prisons in the state of Wisconsin, which I, I know it sounds hard to believe that someone would actually do that, but that's what he said. So the issues of crime in these battleground states for governor, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, they you look at uh, uh, Arizona, they are front and center. And so it is a similar scenario as these Senate races across the country. Back to the Senate, John, real quick, just so that we clear that up. I think that Oz is obviously looking much better today. Uh, if we win two out of the three of Pennsylvania, Georgia, or Nevada, two out of three of those, and the Republicans are going to win the Senate. Gotcha. And, and that's very important. We need uh, uh, rights. We need a balance of power in Washington because uh, we're going down to crapper. Well, there's nothing really you can point to right now that the Biden administration is doing well. On day one, they put their they put their stamp on where our country was going on day one. They froze the Keystone Pipeline. They shut down. The, the border wall. They told cities and municipalities that they needed to count illegal immigrants in their population count in the census. <clears throat> they raised taxes on oil companies uh, and they and they shut down leases. And so I mean, that's what these guys are all about. And now they're looking around and saying, well, how come the oil companies aren't pumping more oil? Well, if you're sitting on the board of Dutch Shell, or you're sitting on the board of Exxon, you tell me if you're going to vote for under with this administration, are you going to tell that company that they need to invest tens of billions of dollars in more production? I don't think so. No, they, they got to invest tens of billions of dollars and we'll hold your left testicle attached to your right ear <laughs> in regulations. Ouch. And I don't even have testicles. You know, I mean, crazy. <laughs> Let their record reflect. <laughs> Okay, getting away from that. Right. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm running the other direction. <laughs> right, this is Pete King. It's good to talk to you again. Good to hear from you. Listen, yeah, you bet, friend. By the way, at, at base, you are a state chairman. I mean, you, had, you, know, you went into higher office and you were running the country and everything else, but basically you are a state chairman, which I think is a great compliment. How is our ground game? How is the Republican ground game as you see it in the key states? Well, I think it's much improved. I mean, even when we rebuilt it, and I think we built the biggest operation you could build, I mean, they've just multiplied it. I think that what the RNC has done and what Kevin at the NRCC has done and the, and the Senate, I mean, they have taken a a data and targeting system and and put it on steroids. I mean, it's scary to say, but if you think about this, and this really breaks down what's happening out there. Look at the state of Wisconsin. It's a good example. You have two people running for Senate, Ron Johnson, Mandela Barnes. They're going to raise and spend $100 million in Wisconsin. Governor is the, the governor's race in Wisconsin is the, is the most expensive governor's race in America. They're going to raise and spend another $100 million. Now, think about this. This is where it gets wild. So in Wisconsin, you're going to spend $200 million dollars fighting over 50,000 votes that are in the middle. So $4,000 a vote, 
That means you, you, when you take your data and digital operation and your ground game, you're spending all that money to move those people. They know everything about those voters. They know what beer they drink, what car they drive, how many kids they have, what color their car is. And when you put all that stuff together, you can actually predict how people are going to vote. That's really what being a chairman is. It's being in charge of a lot of boring things that target voters, that turn out voters, so that when there's only 50,000 people you're fighting over and you're spending $200 million, that's That's crazy. Crazy numbers. Ryan, can I ask you one personal question? Are you still putting putting Bailey's over your your, uh, breakfast cereal? (laughs) No. I don't need to do that anymore. Like you, I'm living a peaceful life. I, <laughs> I haven't. I don't. You know. Right. All, by the way, last all question. Things that stress have me out. Seen, I don't get paid for. Have <laughs> you seen your old boss's new new airplanes? Well, all um, remodeled. Well, I've been in it a gazillion times without it remodeled, but I can't wait to be in it. I I haven't been down there. It was just delivered a couple of weeks ago. Uh, yes, I, I got pictures of it already. Thank you so much, Ryan Spiebus. <laughs> Keep fighting hard. And uh, uh, next, we're going to have the former Attorney General of uh, Pennsylvania, Ernie Priot, to tell us about the Dr. Oz race. Ernie Priot, are you there? I'm here, John. Give us a report. What what the heck happened uh, last night in the debate? Well, let me ask you, did you see the debate last night, John? No, I I couldn't see it in New York. Well, I, I, I have to tell you that uh, it was cringeworthy. It was it was pathetic watching um, Mr. Fetterman uh, try to deal with uh, the stress of his stroke and the stress of the questionings uh, under the glare of the television camera. Uh, it was terrible uh, to, to see him suffering. I said to my wife that this guy belongs in, in, in some kind of a hospital. He needs treatment. He needs help. He shouldn't be out here. Uh, you know, he had a serious medical issue, and I felt for him. Yep. But he was nowhere near uh, able to deal with the questions. He couldn't put two sentences together. Uh, and he, and he, he began the debate by saying good night to everybody. I mean, that's the way instead of saying good evening, he said good night. I mean, that's, that's how far off he was in space. Uh, he never was able to answer any of the questions directly, uh, the nuanced questions. As I say, the last time I was talking to you uh, a couple of weeks ago, when Professor Dershowitz was on, uh, and I said that um, that he couldn't be a juror in a criminal case, and yet we want to put him in the Senate to make this about life and death and critical issues in the not just in this country in the world. You know, I wouldn't want this guy on a school board in charge of my kids' education. I wouldn't it's want him bad. at the grocery store. Uh, hey, you wouldn't want him at the grocery store checking you out. No. General? Uh, th- yes, sir. It's Judge uh, Richard Weinberg. I just want to tell you, I'm a House Democrat, but I find it absolutely reprehensible that the Democratic Party in Pennsylvania allow this man to go you, forward. You said morally outrageous, It is Judge. morally outrageous because, as the general correctly pointed out, you have all these important, you have all these important issues, all these important issues going on, world peace, Energy independence, survival of our country, and you have somebody there who has not a clue of what's going on. It's not about whether he's ill or not ill. It's a question of is he up to the job, and he's shown he's not up to the job. And I, yeah, I totally, I totally agree with you. And I, and I, and I, I, I just want to emphasize that 
my my wife's a nurse, and so we were discussing it from a medical standpoint, and uh, and she she and I agreed that. Well, they're abusing the man by allowing him to get on uh, on the stage like that. You're right. This is abuse of a sick man. You're right. Yes, his family and the, the particularly the powers that be in the Democratic Party that that uh, had a good candidate in Connor Lamb, was a former Marine, former congressman. He was a middle of the road kind of guy, a moderate compared to the socialist uh, Fetterman, and they rejected him. Rejected him and they put well, I hope the people of Pennsylvania reject him because he. I understand that he wants to talk, uh, to convert all of Pennsylvania into what Philadelphia looks like, and that's a mess. Well, I have to tell you about the. You know, the, you and I have talked about the district attorney there, and one of the things that you asked about was if they can get rid of him. This is Larry Krasner um, uh, that, that was put in there, and he is. He is. Uh, been not prosecuting criminals uh, to, to such an extent that the House has done something, the House of Representatives in Harrisburg has done something absolutely unheard of, and that is that they filed letters of impeachment against him yesterday. This is it's the fact that he has not been able to do his duty, and I was a former DA, I was a former Attorney General. You have to enforce the law, you got to prosecute the bad guys, you got to put them in jail. And the only thing you release them is when they earn a release, not that you just let them out the door uh, to walk free. No, you got to earn it. Thank and, you. Uh, Thank you, uh, former Attorney General uh, Ernie Priot from Pennsylvania. Thank you for the report on Pennsylvania. And now we're going to go back to New York and hear from Hank Shankoff, another one smart guy. Uh, 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 David Patterson, you want to bring back uh, Mr. Shankoff? Well, Mr. Shankoff's an old friend of mine, and uh, he's even done some work for me at times. Hank, uh, your views after watching last night's debate? Well, Zeldin lost a lot of the advantage he had, and Kathy Hochul remained static. Why? Um, Thank you. you. No further questions. Uh, Thank you for listening to the John Katsakini Show today, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be back tomorrow at 5 o'clock. Were you you watching the same debate I was, Hank? Yeah, and I'm even a better I'm a better observer in it professionally than you are. Oh, so let's put that in context. Uh-huh. Well, that's one man's opinion. That's your opinion. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> I prefer presidents and heads of states and governors and others for debates. But let me tell you what the problem is. If you want to win upstate votes, you don't attack the stadium in Buffalo. That's number one. That's Bad a good move. point. Number two, if you want to win downstate votes and you want to make sure African Americans don't come out to vote, you don't defend Donald Trump. Or at least if you do it, you cut it off quickly. He didn't do that. So Zeldin kind of, and did he win the crime argument? You bet. But Hochul held her ground. So what you have is static. You don't have any movement on either side. And so in static, you know, the problem here will be a very simple one. For those who need to know New York geography, if the African-American population in Brooklyn does not turn out to vote for Kathy Hochul, particularly women, she's gone. And if at the same time, if the Long Island and Nassau and Suffolk County populations turn out, with significant force, and they won't turn out in the North Shore, east of Great Neck, um, on the on the North Shore, on the uh, in Nassau on the abortion issue, they'll vote for uh, for Hochul. But the rest of the counties are in play. The Nassau and Suffolk, if they turn out with an intensity, and Brooklyn does not, uh, Lee Zeldin will be the next governor. Simple. Wow. So you think Hank Schenkoff, You think Lee Zeldin has a chance? But if he does win, you think it'll be close? Lee Zeldin has a chance, unquestionably. I said it if you uh, check the Hamadia newspaper. I said this six, seven months ago. And uh, if you look at clips and where I was quoted, I said the issues will be crime, 
mm-hmm. and and chaos, not uh, not abortion. I said it on your show, as a matter of fact, some months back. I, so, yep. I, I guess I mean, it's Pete King. Uh, yeah. First of all, it's always great talking with you. Uh, I've seen though, some of the polling for Republican candidates for Congress who ordinarily would not be ahead at this time. And the polling I've seen right. shows me the even or slight ahead. And that could be an indication of just a general dissatisfaction with the Democrats. I'm not saying that in a partisan way. I've been on the other side of no. these, these uh, Pete, waves, whatever Pete, you want to you call are, it. You are one of the most honest people I have ever known, and I'm happy to have you for a friend, quite frankly. So well, thank the you. facts are that, in, that Republicans are doing better because the Democrats don't get it. You know, if you want to fight a war, you fight a war. You don't have a discussion. Democrats are having Zitzkrieg, Republicans are fighting Blitzkrieg, and Blitzkrieg beats Zitzkrieg. Simple. Now, Hank, uh, earlier we discussed this, and I wonder what you would think about this. Why is it that it's so difficult for my colleagues uh, and yours on the Democratic side to address those issues and be specific about what the remedies are other than getting guns off the street, which has a value, but it becomes overvalued when you keep repeating it? They can't tell the truth because they don't want to tell the truth because they're afraid of alienating portions of their electorate. If you look at the Republicans, the truth is that they have much more static, much more cohesive values, arguments and geographic base where they're in control or where they want to take control. The Democrats don't have that. They have always have had a very uh, um, kind of coalition that can fall apart at any moment and the people can exit. There's no reason for them to stay in the same place. You know, and that's the Democrat problem. And that's one of the reasons they can't talk straight on issues. And also, they're afraid to talk straight on issues. God and, forbid they should tell the and, truth. And that the issue, wall, wall Hank, in yeah. a lot of ways, is a canard because the people most victimized are anti-crime and they do want assistance uh, from the police. The blacks well, want it, it. The Hispanics want it. The Asians it, it, want it. That's almost 50 percent. It is idiotic to presume that some liberals do that somehow if you let people run loose in communities and shoot people that other people who live there will be happy. You know, if you did it on 79th Street and Fifth Avenue, they'd be howling. You're doing it in East New York. The only people howling are the people who live in East New York and the newspaper columns. There's something very wrong with that system. Fifteen minutes from where you are located right now is the 4 precinct with crime rates that are astronomical and police detectives that are overloaded with work. Where is the voice for them, the victims and those having to clean up the mess? You're speaking for me, Hank. Where is their voice? And that's and, why Lee Zeldin's in play here. Oh, and Hank Shankoff, one last question. Melissa DeRosa, she was on before and she was talking about her friend, 44 years old, just standing on the corner. What, would, what did she say on the Upper East Side? 21st got, Street. Got randomly. 31st Street. Oh, 31st, uh, yeah, or Broadway. Yeah. And got randomly and punched in the street. I think it's the randomness of the crimes that are really scaring people to their core. I mean, New York City's always had crime, but I don't think we've ever seen so many random attacks. And I think that's. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. It is that things are completely out of order is what gives and out of out of control. The sense of chaos is what generally works against the party in power. We've got examples in our lifetimes and for those beyond. Nixon's the one, 1968, chaos in the streets. Carter, chaos, Reagan wins. Uh, chaos in the economy, Clinton wins. Whenever you have chaotic settings, guess what? The other guy wins. Simple. Well, there you go. Hank Shankoff, thank you for your opinion and and thank you for your insight. And uh, we'll we'll we got 13 days to go and uh, we'll talk to you, uh, I'm sure, several times in the next 13 days. It's always great. I hope I'm that lucky. Thank you. All the best, everybody. Thank you, Hank. And uh, now uh, the state of the economy. We have with us uh, Paul Luntzis. Uh, Paul Luntzis, tell us the name of your company again. 
Paul Lounces and uh, with Lounces Asset Management LLC. And tell us, tell us what the heck is going on in the markets? I mean, uh, the real estate markets are getting destroyed. I mean, uh, you give us your analysis. You know, uh, ultimately what's happening, John, it seems that with the quantitative tightening from the Fed trying to reduce the $9 trillion balance sheet, combined with raising interest rates, so you've got two double whammies that are really impacting liquidity and the market, um, it seems that the market really responds to any comments. Mary Daly out in San Francisco the other day, um, whatever comments they make, really seem to impact the market. And the market is really used to the Fed not continuing on raising rates in the manner that they have recently. They're used to the Fed pivoting and a low interest rate environment for essentially the last 13 years. So the most recent glimpse was when Mary Daly said maybe the, um, the rates will not be as much in November 1st and 2nd and in December, and maybe they'll start lowering them, um, you know, next year sometime. And when people, when they say that, the market responds. And it seems like, uh, you know, you got an election coming up in 13 days. Uh, the market, uh, the Fed is supposed to respond in, uh, in less than that. Uh, do you think uh, there's any chance of, uh, uh, of the Fed pivoting? You know, I, I think given where inflation is, John, it's unlikely that the Fed's really going to be able to to not do the 75, maybe 50 in November. And then they're probably going to have to do something again in December. I don't see how with where inflation is, um, they're going to be able to get away with pivoting like they did back in September, uh, excuse me, back in December uh, of 2015. I just don't think they're going to be able to do it. And one interesting point, historically, once inflation has gotten above 5%, it has never come back down without the Fed funds rate exceeding the CPI. Um, and that's pretty scary because the CPI for September was 8.2. Now, I'm not predicting, but that certainly is what the case has been historically. Once inflation exceeded 5, they've never, it's never come back down without the Fed funds rate exceeding that CPI. And that's really scary. And... Um there was uh, – what else would you like to tell us? we got a minute left. Press conference. Was there a press conference? There was a press, press conference by Biden, Biden today. Does anybody know what happened? Yeah, I mean, at the press conference, President Biden, I think a lot of it's really uh, election-driven for the Senate and the House and, and what's coming up in November. And it was basically a focus on trying to lower the cost of everyday living for, living for American families um, and talking about how billions of dollars – are being charged to consumers and American families in unfair fees. Well, has anybody told them he's failed? <laughs> I understand the other day we had Joe Parisi on and the price of turkey is going to be almost $3 a, a pound. Right, nationwide. It's up 75% nationwide. here in New York, almost 40%. Wow. Well, guys, uh, thank you, uh, Paul Lunsis. And you know what this show stands for? Truth, Truth justice, and the American, American way. way. God bless New York. God bless America. And and uh, we do need God's help. 13 days to go. Make sure you vote the right way. Keep our city and, and country free. This is Cats at Night on the Red Apple Podcast Network.